When we look at the world around us today, it is fraught with turmoil and fear. There is anxiety, uh, certainly amongst us, I would say, over the moral plague that has swept over many of the nations in which we live, affecting our ecclesias, brothers and sisters falling victim to it, our young people being confused by the political correctness of the world that we live in, what we've come to term the alphabet people, uh, the whole wokeness of society where evil has become good and good has become evil as we read of in Isaiah 5 and verse 20. We have anxiety over the whole plague of the coronavirus that we have lived through over the last few years, horrific effect on many. Australia, around 19,500 deaths, 11.3 million people infected, roughly, um, if you believe the numbers, that is, of course. Um, but the economy, certainly in your country and ours, at one point just brought to a standstill, and many still struggling to revive all over the planet. But more importantly, a huge disruption in ecclesial life. Uh, victims of our own brothers and sisters, we know some who have fallen asleep due to the virus, um, or certainly complications from it. But our weekly meetings, whether they're Sundays or Wednesdays, um, were closed for quite some time, uh, certainly in Canada more than it was here. Um, and we have had some that have never come back to meeting, and some who live in fear, obviously because of medical conditions, um, and some who found it convenient to kind of disassociate and kind of drift away. Our Bible schools, thankfully, we were able to meet again. Uh, we weren't for quite some time, and, and certainly when Sister Charlene and I were able to go to Bible school this last summer, um, for us, which would be, of course, July, August, uh, it was a wonderful time, and the, the atmosphere was brilliant because brothers and sisters were so happy to be back together, and it taught us the value of fellowship. And then there is anxiety over the war that is going on in the Ukraine. And it's had, of course, a ripple effect, the price of gasoline and gas itself on the economies, the cost of living, uh, affordable housing, stock markets, jobs. Even if you have one, many people just can't afford to live. Everything that seemed to be concrete and secure has become moving like water on a stormy day. It's very similar although different, to uh, Luke chapter 21, if we'll just turn there for a moment. The time period, of course, of Luke 21 is AD 70, um, and the Lord is talking about the judgment that is to come, but there are principles here that apply. We read in verse 24, they shall fall over the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So obviously it's AD 70. And he says there would be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now we live in a parallel age where all these things are specifically uh, speaking of AD 70. This idea of distress of nations with perplexity is something that we certainly see today. The word there means a holding together, a narrowing, a contracting, the idea of a, of a place becoming very thin or very straight, the, the press of battle, uneasiness and anxiety and despair. Perplexity, the idea of a state of one who is in constant perplexity. Vines describes it as at a loss for a way to go. 
being at one's wit's end and, and a loss of how to proceed without the resources to do something, men's hearts failing them for fear. And the idea is to faint or to swoon away, to lose apo-suki, to be separated from breath, to be breathless is really the idea. And there is fear, the word phobos, dread, which strikes terror for looking after, for the expectation, the tension of fear, of waiting for something to happen, anxiety. Now, the saints are not untouched by these things. We live in the world, we're not supposed to be of it, but we experience a lot of these things in our daily lives. But our perspective should be completely different. Come, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 describes for us the trouble all around us. But you'll notice the difference here. He says in verse 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. So troubled here is the idea of the press, right, of a great press to, to push upon something. But we are not distressed, which is the idea of in such a narrow place or so cramped or so reduced that we have no way out. We are perplexed, he says, uh, which means to be in doubt or to be at a loss, not to know which way to turn, but we're not in despair. And so the idea here is that utterly at a loss to be completely destitute of measures or resources or beyond all hope of to know what to do. We are persecuted, which is, of course, the idea of being made to run or flee, to put to flight, to be harassed, molested, mistreated. But in that persecution, we are not forsaken. And the idea there means to be left helpless, to be abandoned, to be left behind. We are cast down, which is catabalo, which is the idea of being thrown to the ground, uh, to be put in a lower place, but we're not destroyed. And so here the idea is to be completely lost, to be abolished, to be ruined, or to be put out of the way. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. But we which are, live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So what we see in this, in that last little phrase there, is the tribulation and trial is going to be there. We are going to be experiencing it. But it's all about God manifestation. That the life of the Lord Jesus Christ may be made manifest in our flesh. So when we look at trials and tribulations, it's not about the event. It's about our response to it. It's not about what the government does or what the authorities do, but our response to what they do. It's how do we manifest the character of the Father in the event that is taking place. So we have to have a completely different outlook than the world around us. Now it's easy to get caught up in the hype and the anxiety if we listen to the news, if it bombards us, if we listen to the radio, uh, the TV, if we watch TV, or perhaps today more we look at the internet and we scroll through all the things that are going on. Uh, we have it on our phones. And it's no different for us as we're scattered amongst the Gentiles as it was for God's nation. And we need to remember that God is bringing this world into a time of judgment. As one person said once, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. Come, if you would, to Daniel chapter 12. 
because this is the time period that we are living in. It's the time of the resurrection. Verse 1, at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of the people. So that's the context. Well, what's that time? Well, that time is what he's been talking about in verse 40. It's the time of the end. When the king of the south shall push at him and the king of the north shall come against him. So we know we live in that time because it was back in 1917 that these events began to happen where the Ottoman Turk was pushed out of the land and they were dried up, the great river Euphrates. And of course, there was the, the establishment in Israel or in Palestine of the state of Israel. That was in our great grandparents and grandparents times. And of course, 1967 was in my parents' time. I wasn't even alive then. All of those events are this time period. And it's at that time, during that phase, that we see here that Michael's going to stand up and the resurrection's going to take place. But at that same time, there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation until the same time. And that nation he's talking about there is the nation of Israel. And at that time, thy people, he says to Daniel, shall be delivered. So that's the Jews. And of course, we are adopted into the Jewish nation. So it includes us as well. Everyone that shall be found written in the book so this time that is coming is a time of trouble. And the word there is the idea, sarah is the word, straits, distress, vexation, very similar to the words in the New Testament. It's actually what's used of penina, a rival wife. So you can think of the trouble that that would bring. Well, this is what this is talking about here. This kind of trouble constantly on the people. And the people of God, though, are going to be delivered, which means to slip away, to escape, or to be saved. And so our prayer is that our Lord will return and remove us out of this to Sinai as he will begin removing the rest of the diaspora of the Jews when he takes them back to the land. But our outlook on the world that we're living in as it's going to get worse and worse shouldn't be one of anxiety because it heralds for us the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to 2 Timothy chapter 2. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we have here a similar kind of expression of, of what to expect in these times and how we're supposed to handle it. He says in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3, Thou therefore, talking to Timothy, endure hardness. Now he doesn't say there's not going to be hardness. He says endure it. And the word there is katopathia, which means to suffer evil, trouble, or affliction. Suffer through it as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, because we are soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most people, when they sign up to be a soldier, they go to boot camp and they do all those horrible things that they have to do as they train to become a soldier, and they expect hardship. They expect it's not going to be easy. They know that they're not going to be going to the Middle East to open up a little ice cream stand and serve ice cream. They know when they go there, it's going to be rough. It's going to be tough, and it's going to be a, a, a difficult life. Well, this, back in the day, was a similar thing. He says, endure hardness, but he also says, verse 4, no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him that's chosen him to be a soldier. Now, the word there, entangleth, is the idea of to interweave, to be involved in formally... And it actually has the meaning of 
braiding hair. So if you think of plaits of hair, or braids as we call them in North America, where you take them and you put one over the other over the other, and it basically creates one woven sort of piece, that's the idea here, to make ourselves one with something. He says, don't be entangled, don't be interwoven with the affairs of this life. Now that is the Greek word pragmatia, from which we get our word pragmatism. Pragmatic, you know, the things that we should, you know, they're, they're obviously they're pragmatic, they're just things that need to be taken care of. He says, don't be interwoven with the pragmatic issues of this life. Now that in itself is not a very pragmatic statement, right? I mean, it, it just, it doesn't make any sense to the world. But that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Do not interweave yourself with the practical issues of this life so that they take over your life because you've signed up to serve another master. And that has to be our sole directive. So a soldier in the Roman army could not be a shopkeeper. He couldn't go off to Palestine, you know, to, to Judea or wherever it was, and open up a shop. That was not what his commission was. He was a soldier. He had to serve the one who had commissioned him. And the same is true with us, brothers and sisters, is that we have to serve our Lord above all else. And it's not something that we do on the side, in as one of the people I met once said, you know, in the corners of your life, right? This has to be the sole directive of our lives. There was a rabbi once, and um, rabbi, rabbi uh, I think his name was Raphael Samuel Hirsch, and he lived around the, the end of the 18th century, uh, just before the 1900s, and basically, he was writing to Jews and saying, look, you can't assimilate with the Gentiles. And he says, the, you know, the synagogue is not a church. The rabbi is not a priest. You know, and he went on to say, like, you know, being a Jew is not an adjunct, an add-on to our lives. It's the core purpose of our existence. And the same is true for us, brethren and sisters. You know, the ecclesia, we're not a church. We don't call it church. Well, we shouldn't, you know. It's not a house of Celtic gods. You know, this is, this is the ecclesia of the living God. Our arranging brethren, they're not priests. They are brethren. We don't have the structure where the world out there has, where we go to church like Christmas Delphians on, you know, sort of high holidays or whatever it might be. Being a, a Christadelphian should be the core purpose of our life. And everything else fits in around the outside. The what shall we eat, what shall we drink, and wherewithal shall we be saved? Or sh shall we, shall we um, be clothed, sorry. It should be what defines us. And we looked at this passage in, in 2 Peter 3, that all these things around us that we look at as concrete are going to be dissolved. And that being the case, what kind of people, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire are going to be dissolved. All the political situation we see around us today, just like it was in AD 70, is going to be rolled away. It's all going to go. It's what we have read of in the book of Revelation. Remember the, the angel comes for the mid-heaven proclamation? It's between the two heavens, the heavens that are now and the heavens that are going to come, wherein dwells righteousness. And the heavens that are now are all going to be rolled away. They're all going to be done away with. That's why we don't belong to society. We don't sign petitions. We don't join their protests. We're not police officers trying to uphold their laws. We have nothing to do with it. We are to be separate from that. 
But we also, brothers and sisters, need to be separate from it in our daily lives. Come over to Jeremiah 51. The same was true for Israel back in Jeremiah's time. The world has no idea that God is beginning a process of judgment. And we can look at coronavirus as kind of one of those birth pangs, followed by the next birth pang, which is the war in Ukraine. And what's coming next, we don't know. But we know that this is going to increase because we are approaching the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 51 and verse 45, he says, My people, go ye out of the midst of her, deliver every man his soul from the fierce anger of Yahweh, lest your heart faint and you fear for the rumor that shall be heard in the land. A rumor shall come both in one year and after that another year shall another rumor come, and so on and so forth. He says, deliver yourself out of this generation. Well, brothers and sisters, we're surrounded by rumors, conspiracy theories galore, right? And when you turn to the news, you hear all these things and you just think, wow, you know, I got news for you. We've got the biggest conspiracy theory ever. When you go to the border, anything to declare, yes, we're going to take over the world. You know, like it's the biggest one coming. This is it. And we don't need to worry about all the silly conspiracy theories of what the government's doing and whatever else. They're all going to be gone anyway. So why waste our time and invest our effort in what the world is doing? What he says here to Israel is the same thing he says in Revelation 18.4, come out of her, my people. Separate yourself from this society knowing the judgment that is coming. As he goes on to say in Revelation 18.4, that you receive not of her plagues. Because that's what's coming, is judgment upon this world. We want nothing to do with this world. And it also goes on to those practical things of life. We have to have that different outlook. So come to Luke chapter 12 that we had read this morning. And here we have the parallel or very similar wording to what we had in Matthew 6 where he says to his disciples in verse 22, take no thought. The diaglot says, don't be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, or for the body, what you shall put on. And again in verse 25, which of you taking thought can add a cubit to his stature? The diaglot says, being anxious can prolong his life for one moment. If you be not able to do that which is least, why are you taking thought? Why are you anxious about the rest? And verse 29, seek not what you're going to eat or drink, neither be of doubtful mind. Don't be in restless suspense. So instead of being in fear and anxiety, both of what's going on out in the world and how that affects us in our homes, we need to turn our fear into faith and our anxiety into action. Because he goes on to say there, verse 34, where your treasure is, and we looked at this last night, there will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. So that's the remedy for this. Get your staff in your hand, put your shoes on your feet, gird up your loins and prepare for the Lord's return. Be ye, verse 36, ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, that when he return from the wedding, and cometh and knocketh, we jump up and we open to him immediately. And it's not like, ooh, I had this I should have done. 
and that I should have done. Let me turn off the telly, let me close off the internet, let me close off this game that I probably shouldn't be playing. Well, not probably, I definitely shouldn't be playing, or whatever it might be. Every single one of us has all the things in our lives that we need to purge, removing from our lives all those things that would offend and grieve. So we have to get these things out of our lives and have our loins girded and our lights burning brightly. Well, what does that mean? We know what that means. Have the word in our vessels, burning brightly. So we're talking to all those people around us, and they're going to think you're nuts. They've always thought people were nuts. Look at what they thought of Noah until it started to rain. And then all of a sudden, everybody's perspective was changed. And canceled Noah was also the person that everybody was looking to, to try and you know, get into that ark. But it was too late because the door was shut. And so when we look at this, brothers and sisters, we, it's not like we're not going to experience problems. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are going to be in for it to a degree. It's going to get difficult. Verse 16 which cause, he says, we faint not, though our outward man perish, or as the diagot puts it, is wasted, the inward man needs to be renewed day by day. And that's what we have to do now, is to renew that inward man day by day. Every single day we need to renew it. We need to do our readings. And not just do them, but actually sit there and think about them, contemplate them, open our Bibles, do some Bible study, follow the white rabbit, you know, like as you have that little thread and, and just keep on going with it. Look it up and this cross-reference to that cross-reference and follow it and see what God will show you through his word. Have your inward man renewed day by day. And yes, we have busy lives, but God provides us with all kinds of tools. We have YouTube. You can listen to talks while you're doing the housework. You can sit there if you've got a long commute and you can watch a class, read a book. You, you know, if you're not up to reading anymore, everything's pretty well dictated these days. You know, use the tools that are available to us, but get the word into our minds. Our light affliction is but for a moment. It's, as the diagram puts it, a momentary lightness of affliction. It's just for right now. This too is going to pass. Now, we all go through things, brothers and sisters, in our lives that we don't exactly think, well, that's not really light affliction. Like, it's pretty heavy. But it is just for a moment. And when we compare ourselves to our Lord, we realize that our affliction is rather light. I can remember once... Sister Charlene and I were trying to make a decision about what we wanted to do. And, you know, I thought, well, the person I would turn to to get a straight answer would be Uncle Frank Abel, because I know he's going to give it to me straight. He's not going to water it down. And I said to him, Uncle Frank, you know, you know here's what's going on, and, and I'm, I, I, I kind of feel like I should be doing this, but I'm just not comfortable doing that. And Uncle Frank talked to me, turned to me in, in a very straight face, said, Brother Jonathan, just how comfortable do you suppose it was for Jesus hanging on the cross? He says, the truth, son, has nothing to do with your comfort. You have to do what the Lord requires of you. And I was so thankful for Uncle Frank to just give me a good smack upside the head, which we all need at times. A straightforward word in season, out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort. Because it's a light affliction, but for a moment. But again, it's all about God manifestation. It works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's about how we respond in the trial. It's not about what's happened. 
What's happened, we can't take away, but how am I going to respond? What am I going to teach my children and my brothers and sisters around? What example are they going to see? Am I going to go to my God? Am I going to reach to him, or am I going to close the door? It's what we do in those crisis moments. It can work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. So our focus has to be on eternal things. And we need to walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We read here in verse 12 that Abraham is our father. And we have to have that same pilgrim outlook. We might live in cities. We might live, you know, you know in different towns and cities throughout the world. But we are the children of Abraham. Verse 12, the father of the circumcision to them which are not of the circumcision only, but also, all, also um, <clears throat> who walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So this is what faith is all about. It's about walking. We're walking in the steps of the faith of Abraham. Abraham didn't stand still. He went out and he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. And wherever God said to go, he went. He walked. And faith is all about action, about doing the Father's will. It's not just an academic debaters club that we've joined. It's about the life that we live outside of here. When we go home, when we go to work, we should be the same people. It requires a complete lifestyle overhaul, doing the will of God. Well, walking in the footsteps of Abraham, the faith, well, how do we get faith? Well, we looked at that last night, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And without faith, Hebrews eleven six, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it has to translate into practical trust of what we're going to do in our lives. Now come down to verse 18 here. When we read of Abraham, it says, who against hope believed in hope that he might be the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Now that phrase, considered not, is katanoio, which is the idea to fix one's eyes upon. And that's our problem, brothers and sisters. We fix our eyes upon our own weakness. But Abraham didn't do that. He didn't fix his eyes upon the fact that he's 100 and Sarah has a dead womb and she's 90 years old. He staggered not at the promise of the God. The, the word stagger is diacrino, which means to hesitate, to be in variance with oneself, to be in doubt, to vacillate. He did not stagger at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving the glory to God and being fully persuaded. And the word there literally means to be filled with conviction and convinced that what God had promised he was able to perform. Now, you and I, brothers and sisters, need to have that faith. It's not about self. It's not about self-assurance, self-confidence, or anything like that. If we have self-confidence, we're doomed. If you put your confidence in yourself or me or anybody else, I guarantee you, you're going to be a complete and abject failure. 
You have to put your confidence that what God has promised, he is able to perform. And he can perform in you the work that he has begun. And so when we look at this and we look at Abraham, it goes on to say, therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So we're talking about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, it was his faith in action that's imputed to him for righteousness. Now, the word is imputed is one that we don't really use anymore. I mean, when was the last time you imputed something to somebody? You know, it just doesn't get used. But if I was to say, you know, one of your young people here going to uni in Adelaide was to come to Toronto and wanted to transfer and take the same course, but in Toronto, we would have different prerequisites and different requirements. But they would look at what they'd done and they would accredit certain courses to them as equivalents. Of course, they wouldn't accredit them all because they want to make some money off you, but they will accredit you or they will account to you equivalent things. And that's what God does with faith. He accredits our faith for righteousness. We don't have righteousness, but if we have faith, he takes it as equivalent. And that's what that word imputed there means. It was accredited to them for righteousness. Now, it's not written for his sakes alone that it was imputed or accounted or accredited to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised for our justification. So God has made promises to us, brothers and sisters, about all the things of this life and the inclusion in the one to come. What we have to do is what Abraham did and believe it. Believe it when it doesn't look like it's possible. 100 years old, wife who's 90, impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. And stop trusting in ourselves and put our trust in our God. Now, this is picked up by James. If we come over to the uh, letter of James in chapter 2, he speaks of this and speaks of Abraham. And in verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? So this is a different circumstance, but he says he was justified by works. Verse 22, see then how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. So the word there, wrought, is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's synergio, from which we get our word synergy from. So when you have this big argument about faith versus works, Martin Luther and all these other ones, right? You know, how does this all work? It's synergistic. The two of them go together. They work together is what the word means. To help in the work, they're partners together. They put forth power together. They assist one another. So faith and works come together. Verse 23, that the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, and he goes on to talk about, a man is not justified by faith only. Likewise, the harlot Rahab, she was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. And as we looked at last night, these two things have to work together. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith, if it's not active, if it's not working, is dead also being alone. And that word, synergy, is used a couple of other places, just to cite them, Matthew, or Mark 16, 20, where the Lord, the, the disciples went out, and it says the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs. 
So he worked with them. He gave them the Holy Spirit. They would preach, and then they would do miracles, and he worked with them to prove to the people that they were messengers sent from God. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, we then as workers together with them beseech you. Romans 8, 28, we know this one well. All things work together for good to them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. It's the synergy of those two things coming together. And we have the example of people who are like this. Let's just turn quickly to 1 Samuel 17. We have David who goes up against Goliath. Verse 4, there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines, an Isha, a, a great man. And he's a man of war. He's a man who has been fighting since his youth. Goliath, whose name means splendor. And he is splendidly arrayed with the armor of flesh, of brass. And then you can read through the great list. A huge man of flesh defended by the flesh. And he comes in verse 10 and he says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He defies the word literally means to reproach, to taunt, to blaspheme, to rail, or to upbraid. Well, brothers and sisters, today, this is the case. We have the reproaches of the world against the people of God. They cast in their teeth against the principles of the Father. They bring the full force to law with their Goliaths of cancel culture, against anybody who will stand up against their wokeness, who will speak out against the abomination and say, this is what the Father has to say. They stand there and defy us to challenge them. So what do we do, brothers and sisters, in this case? They think they're enlightened, and we'll, we'll talk about this at the sisters' class a little bit more. Um, you know, they use the phrase woke, and I had to look it up. Like, what on earth does that mean? And the idea is to be woken up to be somebody who has been woken out of sleep. And they believe that they have woken out of the constraints of the Judeo-Christian culture with all these moral boundaries and constraints. They've seen something better, something without God's laws and constraints. Well, the first woke couple was Adam and Eve. Remember what the serpent said? Your eyes shall be opened. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The word to open there literally is the same word that's used in the Proverbs, the idea of being opened from sleep. They were woke. How did that work for them? Not very well. And that's what the world is going to find out. So here we have Samuel, or sorry, David here in, in Samuel, and, and they hear all of this, and the people are greatly afraid. Verse 11, Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were shattered, is the word, dismayed. They were greatly forcefully inspired with fear. They were terrified. And what did they do? Verse 24, they fled from him and were sore afraid. Well, what about us, brothers and sisters? Are we afraid of the fight? Do we cower, worried that we might lose our job or our place in society or our name might be besmeared at work or in the community that we're in? Or do we stand and fight against spiritual wickedness in high places? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we martyr ourselves and go looking for trouble, but we have to address the issues of the day. 
So along comes young David in verse 32. David says to Saul, and notice the word here, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go out and fight this Philistine. The word literally means to fall down prostrate. Don't fail. And of course, there are always souls in the ecclesia. People who are too afraid to fight themselves and don't want anybody else to do it because it will show them up. So he says to David in verse 33, look, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth. He's a man of war from his youth. They saw the height. They saw the armor. They saw this mountain of flesh. They saw through the eyes of flesh. But David had a confidence in verse 36. He says, look, your servant slew both a lion and a bear. This uncircumcised Philistine is going to be like one of them, seeing you have defied the armies of the living God. And David said, moreover, Yahweh that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And so David, or Saul, concedes and says to David, go and Yahweh be with thee. And of course he tries to equip him in his own armor, brass, again, the armor of flesh, but like us, brothers and sisters, as we read in 2 Corinthians 10, just stay in Samuel, we don't war after the flesh. We don't fight after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, having a readiness to revenge all disobedience. So David goes out there, with neither sword nor spear, nor armor, but a small stone that's been cut without hands. And he says, you know, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a shield, but I come to you, verse 46 and 7, I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will, I take, will, will uh, Yahweh deliver thee into mine hand. It's not what he's going to do, it's what God's going to do through him. And that's his perspective. And that's the perspective that we need to have, that God can fight through us. The battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. All the earth shall know that there is a God in Israel, he says. And all this assembly, all of the ecclesia, will know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear, but the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give, us, give you into our hand. And that's where we live, in a war, against a Goliath of the world out there causing great anxiety at the end of an age, but things are not going to continue as they were. We cannot, at this point, interweave ourselves with the world because the world is going to be pulled down. It's going to be destroyed. We cannot be infected by its madness. We can't be cowered into submission, our hearts failing us for fear. We have to turn our fear and anxiety into faith and into action being about our Lord's will. Come to 2 Corinthians 4, just as we pull our thoughts to a close here, brothers and sisters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is the instruction we have. We read this earlier, this cause we faint not. Though our outward man perish, this is verse 16, the inward man is renewed day by day. Our light affliction is but for a moment, and it works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. And so, brothers and sisters, we come to the memorial table. We come to remember our Lord, our David, who fought the greater Goliath and crushed it in the head. Who crushed it in the head. 
who bruised the head of the serpent, the one who Abraham saw and was glad. Not only did he walk in the steps of the faith of his father Abraham, he brought the Abrahamic covenant into effect. He redeemed his people. And we need to extract ourselves out of the clutches of the world, extract our minds, extract our bodies, and dedicate ourselves wholly unto him because he tells us. He says in, in John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace, not anxiety. In the world there's gonna be tribulation, but be of good cheer, he says, I have overcome the world. And so, as we are encouraged in the first century that the disciples were, you know, when these things begin to come to pass, look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws nigh. So as we see the world go more down this path, we need to draw together as ecclesias and brothers and sisters and prepare for our Lord's return. And as we read there in Luke 12, verse 35, let our loins be girded about and our lights burning. And you yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. That when he cometh and knocks, you may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants who when his Lord shall come shall find them watching. For I say unto you, he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and come forth and serve them. And so now... We meet and we remember our Lord Jesus Christ in the table that he has prepared for us in anticipation of his return when he will once again invite us to eat at his table. And we remember what he has done for us and our pledge to join him in this great battle, in this great battle that we would present our bodies as living sacrifices and participate in the emblems that are before us, not by ritual, not just by eating a little piece of bread and a, drinking a little bit of wine, but by putting to death the flesh and pouring out our lives with him so that when he comes, he may find us as servants that are obedient, that are watching and thrilled that our Lord has finally come.